pray and we're gonna jump into the word this morning. Father, we're so, so grateful. We're so grateful for your goodness and we're so grateful for your goodness revealed in the person of Christ Jesus. Jesus, the son of God, the son of man. Jesus, the true king. Jesus, the one that was sent to be our sacrifice, to die in our place, to be a substitution on behalf of our sin. Jesus, the rightful king and ruler of this earth, and Jesus, the rightful king and ruler of all of the worlds, all of the entire created order. Jesus, today we pray that, uh, that you would be more than just a child in a manger, that you would be more than just a figure in a nativity set. We pray that this year you would be more you would be who you are. You would be the reigning king in our hearts. You would be the one who is the faithful and the true witness. You would be the one who comes to declare that you are coming again and you are bringing the fullness of your kingdom with you. We pray for an explosion of faith and hope and joy and peace in our hearts and for the world around us. And we pray these things in Christ's name and the power of his spirit, amen. Amen. Well, you've been hearing us talk here for the past few weeks on Advent. Advent. Well, what is that? Let me just give you for a few minutes a little bit of an overview of our series, the things we're going to be talking about here in the next four weeks. Uh, One of the things that we like to do is identify what's the purpose? Why are we talking about these things? And very simply, the purpose of this series is to highlight the centrality of Jesus within God's story. We want to highlight, we want to emphasize, we want to put focus, we want to make Jesus Grand Central Station of everything that we talk about, everything we discuss, everything we preach about, and most importantly, here in this Advent season, we want to emphasize the centrality of Jesus within the story that we are participants in, God's story. Uh, Number two, we want to bring clarity to the gospel, clarity to the gospel, I I have been over the past few weeks and probably even past few months, you know, one of the things that we've been doing as a preaching team is trying to get out a little bit ahead on the things that we're bringing to the house. We want to get ahead of the things that we feel like God wants to inject and form into this house. And that requires greater preparation. It requires greater foresight, greater planning, greater prayer. And one of the things that's been stirring in our hearts is a return to the gospel, just an understanding of the power and the reality of what the gospel of Jesus is and its, its necessity on the world today. And so I love this because in our series purpose, we wanna bring clarity to the gospel of the good news. And what's the good news? It's the good news, very simply, that Christ's kingdom has in fact come to the earth. When Jesus was born, when Jesus died and resurrected, something was set in motion. The kingdom of God came to the earth. And that is a very, very important reality in our Christian faith. In fact, Jesus describes it like this. He says that the kingdom of God is like a man who went out and he put a seed into the ground. And then he, in Matthew 13, he gives a number of different stories likening the kingdom to a seed. You know, when Jesus came, His life and his death and his resurrection, they were like a seed. The seed of the kingdom is now in the cosmos and it's growing. 
Another example that he gave was like the kingdom is like leaven. We're all kind of post Thanksgiving and baking. And he says the kingdom of God is like leaven that goes into a lump and it works its way through that entire lump. And before you know it, that lump begins to rise. That dough begins to rise because of that little amount of leaven that's in there. That is the kingdom that is here today. That kingdom that starts off small, another example he gave is the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's small, it's tiny. When you look at, in the face of history, one man who came, he lived his life, he died, that's small, that's little, that's tiny, that's minute. Yes, but in the end, that mustard seed becomes one of the greatest trees and it provides shade and coverage for all that's around it. That's the kingdom that is here now. And we want, we want to emphasize that. We want there to be hope and joy and victory and life and excitement and faith that stirs in our hearts for the reality of God's kingdom that's here now. But it's not here in its fullness. It's not here in its fullness. And so the third purpose of this series is for us to allow ourselves to be shaped and formed as a people in the image of Christ as we participate with spiritual rhythms like Advent, not only celebrating his kingdom that has come, but also looking forward to the fullness and the finality of his kingdom that is coming. So we have a couple of specific objectives or targets on the wall that we're aiming at in the next four weeks. Number one, we want our hearts as a people, as a corporate family, we wanna help prepare our hearts to live between Christ's two comings. We live in this dynamic tension. We live in this space and time between the arrival of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and now we are longing and anticipating and expecting his second coming. We're like those workers that were in the vineyard in the parable that Jesus spoke about, who the king gave them assignments and he went away, that's us. We have a job, we have an assignment, we have a task, we have a work and our master is coming back. He is coming back, he is returning to this earth and he's not returning to take us all away, he's returning to stay on this earth. I believe that, the scripture tells of it, I believe it with all of my heart. And I'm learning how to live my life in the reality of that tension. I'll be really honest with you. Today we're gonna to talk about, and we're gonna talk about this in, in the framework of Christian faith and Christian history. We're gonna talk about Christ's second coming today. And I'll be honest with you, there's been something that's been in my heart, particularly when I was a little bit younger, maybe even the college years and a little bit past that, where I was not thrilled about the idea of Christ coming back. I wasn't, I wasn't excited about that. And I really can't, as I think about that and analyze that, I really can't put my finger on what that is. Maybe I was too carnal. Maybe I was too worldly. Maybe I was too immature. Maybe, uh, maybe I was afraid. I don't know what it was, but there was just not this overwhelming excitement like, yeah, it's all gonna be over. <laughs> now that I have some greater understanding, I understand it's not gonna be over. It's not gonna be, our work continues throughout all of eternity. And as we sing this song today, the Lord has just been just, I think, tilling and preparing and cultivating my heart over the past year. 
And we sing the song today, glory to, you know, we move from glory to glory and it says that we're gonna see you face to face. And I just realized the, ad, the, the Advent revelation just exploded in my heart. God, this is a good thing. This, this is what we're longing for. This is what we're anticipating. And we find ourselves identifying much like the people of Israel before Jesus' first arrival. That's us. We identify with that longing of Christ the Messiah coming to bring order and to restore this world back to God's kingdom. So a second objective we have is we want to highlight the major themes of Advent. There's gonna be a number of themes that you hear over the next few weeks. And some of those themes, I'll just point those out to you right now. We're gonna hear words like uh, longing, long, words like um, expectation, words like anticipation, because these are the exact same feelings that, the people of God experienced as that they didn't know when Christ was gonna come. They just knew that there was prophetic word after prophetic word after prophetic word that spanned hundreds of years. And so there was this, there was this expectation inside of them, when will the Messiah come? Us parents can identify with that feeling in our children as the days towards Christmas day come and there's this, when is the day gonna get here? When is the day gonna get here? When is the day gonna get here? Well, it's a similar feeling that the people of Israel were experiencing, but it had a lot more intensity and a lot more significance to it. And we identify with that. We're gonna hear words over the next few weeks like preparation and watching, being ready. We're gonna hear words like arrival, Christ's first and second coming. We're gonna hear a lot about the kingdom of God because that's what Advent is all about. We're gonna hear about incarnation and we're gonna hear about Emmanuel, God with us. So these themes of hope and anticipation, these themes of longing and patience and pain and humility, these are not things that just the people of God experienced thousands upon thousands of years ago. These are things that we experience today. This is real for us. When Christy gets up here and she prays for those in the nations of the world and listen, the atrocities, the pain, the suffering of people all around the world should cause our hearts to cry out, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Come and make every evil right. Come, Lord Jesus, we long for your arrival. We long for you to set at peace what is in discord. We long for that in our hearts. Finally, we want to equip you over the next few weeks to participate with the season of Advent by providing some more historical context and also providing some modern practices. Okay, so things to, uh, things, things to focus on here. Number one, we're gonna focus on today a time to watch. Next week, we're gonna talk about a time to repent. A time to repent. In the third week, we're gonna talk about a time to heal. A time to heal. And finally, we're gonna talk about a time to love. So a time to watch, a time to repent, a time to heal, and a time to love. All of these set within the narrative of Christ's first coming and his second coming. All right, here we go. What is Advent? Advent comes from the Latin word, Adventus, and it very simply means arrival. 
It's a very simple word for arrival. It's actually, a tr- it's actually a transliteration of a Greek word, and that Greek word is a word called parousia. That word parousia very simply speaks about the king's arrival. It's actually a word that they used in the days of Rome. Whenever Caesar would go out and he would fight battles, and he would win those battles, when he would return back to a city, they would call it a royal visitation. That's the word parousia. It's also the word advent. So it's a royal visitation when the king has gone out to war, fought his battles, and returns back to his city-state, and all of the people in that city-state would go out, they would leave the city, and they would go and they would meet him, and then they would usher him back into the city. Now, this is actually the context in 1 Thessalonians 4, which we'll look at here in a few minutes. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, many of us understand this as a classic rapture escapist verse where it says that we will go up into the air and we will meet Jesus. And then what we do is we kind of fill in the blank from there and we assume that when we meet him, that he's going to take us away. No, no. Historically, we're speaking of Paul was totally pulling this from the manners and customs of that day. And so he's saying, we will go up into the air and meet Christ, but we're going to usher him back down into this earth at his second arrival, his second advent, his second parousia, the holy visitation and coming of our Lord. It is a holy season that precedes Christmas. Uh, It has for years And when I say years, about 1,600 years within the tradition and faith of the church, it has been a time of hope and expectancy when Christians prepare their hearts for the coming of Christ. Last night, I I slipped in to the worship rehearsal and uh, just by a prompting, I just wanted to come in and kind of pray, pray over the service, pray over the sanctuary, connect with the heart of uh, what Jonathan and the team were doing this morning. And uh, I slipped into their devotional time before they actually started practicing and rehearsing. And uh, one of the members of the team said this, Jonathan just explained some thoughts about Advent so that they could really synchronize their heart uh, to the spirit of what this day and what this season are about. And uh, one of the members of the team said, you know, I, I am perhaps more excited about this season, this year of my life than ever before in my life. And then he went on to say, you know, I think if we're not careful, that in the church, what we do is we we just try to find more creative spins, all these different creative angles on this old story to try to somehow make it come alive to people. And when you participate with a season of reflection, and when you participate with a season of meaningful uh, introspection, of preparing our heart through repentance, through healing, through loving, uh, through looking forward to the arrival of God, we don't have to like put a new veneer on what Christmas is to compete with the competition of consumerism around us. We can allow something that has been a cornerstone in the faith and tradition of the church for 1,600 years to continue to shape and form us today. And I just, I love that. I love getting to hear the hearts of of some of our team share that. So again, we are living between two arrivals. To be a follower of Christ is to stand between two arrivals. His birth in Bethlehem, thousands upon thousands of years ago, and his promised second coming. So we look backwards with joy We look backwards saying, my goodness, this is a time of fulfilled promise. And that brings joy. 
everything about the Christmas season in Christ brings joy. It has the potential to produce a joy within us. But then we also look forward with hope. So those are key terms. We look backwards with joy, we look forward with hope. Interestingly enough, as the tradition of Advent developed, the first Sunday of Advent, which is today, became a time to specifically focus on Christ as King. So as you, as you look at the, the breakdown, the division of the four Sundays, the first two Sundays focus more on Christ's second coming. So next week when we talk about a time to repent, we're going to be talking about a time to repent in the framework or the perspective of God's second, Christ's second coming. And then on the third Sunday, things take a switch. They turn, and then we focus back on the first arrival. So it may feel a little backwards, but it's not. It's not. We focus first on his second coming, and then we look backwards as we get closer to Christmas, and we reflect on the beauty and the joy and the power of his first arrival. I I read this from an incredible blog resource. It's called keepingadvent.com keepingadvent.com, and uh, written by a a really credible source, uh, actually someone who's here in town and connected to a great, great church here in town. And, And he wrote this, I thought it was beautiful. He says, at its root, Advent is a season of messianic anticipation. At its root, it is a season of messianic anticipation. When Israel's ancient longing for the Messiah echoes deeply in our own hearts, as we watch and pray for Christ to return. Messianic anticipation that echoes in our hearts as we now wait and pray for Christ's return. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to go with me to the book of Genesis, chapter three. And I'm gonna try to frame this today by talking first about Christ's first arrival and then switching gears to talk about his second coming, those parallel tracks So it's a time to watch. And the people of God, the people of Israel, thousands of years ago were watching for the Messiah's first arrival. And if you're not familiar with God's story, we call this redemptive history. If you're not familiar with the very real story that God has framed and formed and written, uh, I'll, I'll just catch you up. Broad, broad, brief overview. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And at the apex of his creation, he created man, made in the very image of the triune God, made in the image of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Man was the pinnacle. Man was the apex. Man was the the highest expression of creativity. Man mirrored who God was. And one of the beautiful things about what God put in man is he gave man choice, will, freedom of choice, responsibility. Man was created in the image of God to work, to care, to steward, to cultivate, to guard the created order. Man and woman were created to uh, have offspring, to multiply, to take dominion of the earth in the same spirit and the character and the nature of God. Every great story has not only a wonderful plot and incredible characters, Every great story also has an antagonist, a villain. And our story has a villain. And uh, the villain of our story, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, a very real uh, entity, 
enters into the scene and enters onto our story in Genesis chapter three. And essentially what the antagonist of our story does is he convinces Adam and Eve, he convinces the first man and the first woman that God does not have their best interest in mind. He convinces them that he's not a good father. He convinces them that he just wants to control them. And he somehow manipulatively persuades them to choose by the power of will to choose their own way, to choose dissent and treason and to choose life outside of the authority of God. And when that one decision happened, something entered into the created order. We call that sin. We call that a spiritual force of rebellion and a spiritual force of dissent that questions God, it questions authority, and it essentially chooses for us to live life our own way. Now, something happened when that curse entered into the created order, and I'm gonna pick this up right here in Genesis chapter three, and we're gonna look at verse 14 and 15. So there are consequences to decisions that we make. There's consequences to disobedience. There's consequences to rebellion. And we find here in Genesis chapter three, the consequences of man's treason against God. We look at verse 14, it says, so the Lord said to the snake, and the snake is, is the devil, he's the enemy here in this story. And he said to the snake, because you have done this, because you have turned the heart of my people away from me, because you have tricked them and snared them, Here's what's gonna happen. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman. What does that mean? It means that we will forever have an enemy who opposes us. That's what that means. I will put enmity. I will put tension. I will put hostility. The enemy hates humanity because we remind him of the glory and the goodness of God. The enemy hates humanity because we have been given rightful authority in the realm of this earth and he lusts for that and he craves that and he hates us because we are sons and daughters of God. So then it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. This is actually what's called a messianic promise. Look at this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Now, looking deeper into this, what this is essentially saying is, is that you came against my children, humanity, human flesh. And through that same humanity, through, through human beings, I'm gonna get you. I am going to overthrow you. I am going to destroy your authority. I'm going to take back what you took from me and it's gonna happen through a man, through flesh. It's right there. It is the first messianic promise and prophetic word that we have in scripture. The son of God is gonna come and it's gonna come in the flesh. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So what's taking place here? What's taking place, number one, is the reality of pain and suffering and struggle that is in the earth as a result of our own choosing. The reality of sickness, the reality of dysfunction, 
The reality of terror, the reality of evil, the reality of genocide, the reality of homicide, the reality of these atrocious evils that are in our planet are here because of man's choosing. And what we see here from Genesis, essentially the entire Old Testament now, is the story of how Adam and Eve, through conception, through offspring, through multiplication, leading up to the man Abraham, Abraham being, being prophesied as being one who the Messiah, God's son, would come to the earth through that lineage, through that seed. We see that Abraham builds a family, and out of that family, that family becomes a nation, and as we follow the Old Testament, we find that that nation known as the children of Israel or the people of God, they essentially mirror the same journey that Adam mirrored in following God and falling away from God, rebelling against God, committing treason. And then we find the struggle, we find the imprisonment, the exile, the captivity that the people of God live in, the suffering, the struggle, and the pain that come as a result and consequence of their own sin and their own decision. In fact, as we enter into the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we find the story of Christ's first coming, his arrival, the people of God, the children of Israel at that time were under Roman rule. They were slaves. They were captive again. They were under Roman oppression, under Roman law. They, they still didn't have freedom of being their own people, freedom of having, being in their own land. They were under oppression again. And so the intensity of the anticipation of the Messiah heightened. It increased. God, how long? How long? How long will we have to endure the oppression of our enemies? How many of you guys could say, this sounds a little familiar to moments of my journey? This sounds a little too close to home as it relates to whatever financial struggle, physical struggle, relational struggle, marital struggle, even struggle with the reality of the imprisonment of sin in our own lives, the strongholds and the chains of sin in our own character, in our own personality. I don't know if you're anything like me, but there are times when I can, I can, get, a little, I can get a little discouraged. I can get a little overwhelmed. I can get a little overcome. I can get a little frustrated that I'm not further along than I think that I should be or want to be. I can get a little, um, again, disheartened as I participate with the sanctification process and I want to be more free than I am. This is the reality of Advent. This is the reality of longing for the fullness of God's kingdom coming to the earth. We read a scripture earlier today and the beginning of that scripture was found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Let's throw that up real quick. Just, just chapter 9, verse 2 of Isaiah, Alyssa. This right here reflects, this is a prophetic verse that speaks about the coming of Christ. Because in the midst of this struggle and darkness and pain, there is hope. There was hope for the people of Israel, and that hope was the Messiah, Christ the King, is coming. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Walking in darkness. That is speaking to the reality of the people of Israel of, those, of that day. The people walking in darkness. When Christ comes, they will see a light. There is hope for the struggle and the pain of sin. It says, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. One of the greatest characters, I think, 
that epitomizes the reality of the Advent anticipation is a man by the name of Simeon. We're gonna look at Simeon in Luke chapter two, beginning in verse 25. So fast forwarding, Jesus is born of Mary and Joseph. We're gonna talk about some of the details of how Jesus was born, the significance of how Jesus was born as we get closer to Christmas. But here what I want you to see is I want you to see this old Jewish man, a man by the name of Simeon. We don't know much about Simeon, but what we know is that he was a faithful man. We know that he was a man that uh, devoutly went to the temple to seek God. And we know that he was a man who heard from God. And we know that he was a man who had a deep longing in his heart because of a promise. The Messiah is coming and Simeon, you're gonna see him. You're gonna see him before you die. Look right here in Luke chapter two, beginning in 25. There's a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Powerful word, consolation. In the Greek, it's periklesis. And the word there simply means messianic salvation that brings comfort and it brings encouragement and it brings help. So here he was longing for the salvation of Israel that was to come through the Messiah. It says the Holy Spirit was on him, verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Imagine that. Imagine that. Imagine the Holy Spirit shows up to you in your quiet time or in a corporate setting. He says, son, take heart. You don't know when it's gonna happen, but I want you to know the Messiah that Ezekiel prophesied about, that the, that the Messiah that Micah prophesied about, that the Messiah that was prophesied to your forefather in the faith, Abraham, you're gonna see him with your eyes. That's powerful. And here Simeon in his faithfulness continued to remain faithful to God, show up to the temple courts on a regular basis, verse 27, moved by the spirit one day, By the prompting and the leadership of the Holy Spirit, he goes into the temple courts and then here's Mary and Joseph. They bring in the child Jesus to do what the custom of the law required. And here's the moment. Here's the moment. Now I want you to just stop here for a second. Brian Zahn wrote a phenomenal article I posted on on Facebook last night. And essentially the article was, was this, that in the season of Advent, that we get to participate in deeper contemplation. Because it's those that are contemplative, those that slow down, those that cut things out, those that get quiet, that actually have the capacity to discern what God is doing. Isn't it interesting that there were people in the time of Jesus that they majored on studying so much about God for the anticipation of Christ's Messiah, and they actually missed him. They missed him. The Pharisees missed him. The Sadducees missed him. King Herod missed him. They missed Christ. And yet it was their job to discern when Christ had come. And here's this old man, Simeon, full of Holy Spirit, full of God, faithful in his devotion to Christ, living a contemplative life of devotion. And the Holy Spirit says, you're gonna see him. That's one thing but to discern when mom and dad walk into the room and they got the baby in their hands to just know by the spirit, this is him. 
This is him. This is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the one that we've been, I mean, I can't even imagine the level of emotion that must have been exploding within Simeon that the day that he had been longing for had finally arrived. Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God. Look at verse 29. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, as you have promised in the midst of brokenness, despair, and pain, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. What is Advent? That's Advent. It's a watching, it's a waiting, it's a longing. It is a preparing, it is a humbling, it is a simplifying so that we can see him when he comes. So that we can recognize, so that we can discern the king is here and so that we can respond accordingly. In Luke chapter one, let's look at Luke chapter one, another probably one of my favorite passages that surround Christmas and the Advent season. This is the story of a man by the name of Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest in the religious structure of that day and it was revealed to him that he was gonna have a son. And you can read Zechariah's story and you can read the story of John the Baptist and the birth of John the Baptist. It's so, so brilliant. But we're gonna pick up this story actually when John the Baptist is born. And Zechariah, John's father, sees son. He's, he sees a son, he's overcome, and a spirit of prophecy comes upon him. And this is what he speaks over his son. We're gonna pick this up in verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and he has redeemed them. He has come. Listen to this language. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come. He's come. He said he was gonna come hundreds upon hundreds of years. We waited for it in the time of Abraham. We waited in the time of Isaac. We waited in the time of Jacob. We waited in the time of Joseph. We waited in the time of Moses. We waited in the time of Samuel. We waited in the time of the prophets, the judges, the kings. It's here. He said he was gonna come and he has come. Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. We can't miss that language. The language of he said it and he did it. He promised it and he fulfilled it. We needed light to enter into darkness. He promised it and it came. Verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. Guys, there's such rich, rich, rich language. The, the, the implications of all the things here that Zechariah is praying connects thousands of years of redemptive history and they speak to our future. The oath that, he's, that God swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. Don't, don't you hear, you hear the voice of captivity in that. You hear that. You hear the perspective of the marginalized in that. You hear the longing, you hear the aching, you hear the pain of those that have lived in exile, those that have been in bondage. It is right there encapsulated in Zechariah's prayer. 
Look at verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Advent is prophetic in nature. Advent, when we participate with it, has the power to break and cut things that have just collected on our lives just through the journey of life. Listen, I wanna speak prophetically here to you here for, for a few minutes. Participate in the next four weeks with allowing God to do circumcision, to prepare the way. And we sang that today. We said, prepare the way of the Lord. That's not just a song we sing, and it's not just an Old Testament reality. It is a reality that we participate with by the Spirit on a daily basis. And it's the beauty of participating with the rhythms of the church is that we actually get to participate with purposes that God has set to help us encounter him and be shaped into his image more accurately. So in the name of the Lord, may every chain and may every hindrance of sin, may every entanglement, may all anxiety, may all fear that has come upon you, may all news of bad reports, may they be broken off of your lives. And may, they be, may there be a prophetic release on your life to help prepare the way in your heart for the arrival of our King, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Look at verse 79. Here is the connection with the Old Testament prophetic word, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So the first arrival, the first advent is Jesus was born. But what about this second arrival? What about this second coming? What do we do with that? Well, let's look here at a couple of passages of scripture. Look at Acts chapter one with me. I'm gonna begin in verse nine. So essentially what I'm doing right now is I'm, I'm fast forwarding past a huge chunk of the story. I'm skipping out Jesus' childhood. I'm skipping out his baptism. I'm skipping out his time in the wilderness, his obedience to the Father, his ministry on the earth, his signs, his wonders, his miracles, and most important, his salvific death and resurrection. And we're picking up the story where his closest followers actually see Christ resurrected and ascending to the heavens. Look right now at Acts 1 verse 9. It says, after he had said this, he was taken up. This is Jesus speaking to his followers. He was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you to heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go. This is very important in Christian faith and tradition. In fact, in the creeds, it speaks about the second coming of Christ. We believe in the second coming of Christ, our King. We don't talk much about this. We don't preach much about this. We don't confess much about this. But actually, this frames the purpose and the hope of the Christian life particularly for those who are experiencing struggle, particularly for those that are in bondage, particularly for those that are experiencing the pain of this world. 
the pain of lost loved ones, the pain of prayers that have been prayed and not been answered or fulfilled in the manner that we expected them to be filled, the pain of physical ailments. Are you guys tracking with me today? The same Jesus who ascended into the heavens, he will return. And so we pick up here in Matthew chapter 24. Go with me in Matthew chapter 24. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he says to his disciples, he's, he's preparing them. He's preparing them not only for his death and his resurrection, he's preparing them to pass on in the spirit of faith and in liturgy and doctrine and creed to future generations past them. Look at Matthew 24, 36. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, but about that day or hour, no one knows the day or the hour of his second arrival. Not even the angels in heaven, not even me, the son, the only one who knows that my second coming is the father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. You know that phrase, the coming of the son of man? That's our word parousia. It's our word for royal arrival. It's our word for advent. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, watch. Watch, Advent, be looking, be paying attention, be ready, be awake, be anticipating, be expecting. Live life in the light of Christ returning. Not in fear, not in fear, but in expectation. There was a time in my life I would read these scriptures, I'd read them from a lens of fear, trepidation, Now I look at these and say, come Lord Jesus. Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and he would not have let his house be broken to. Sounds very logical to me. So you also must be ready. Everybody say, be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. He will come. He will come. So what do we do with this? How do we live life now in the tension of two arrivals? Jonathan, come on up if you would. Number one, I want to provoke your hearts this morning, church. I want to provoke your heart to actually allow God to recalibrate something inside of you and in me, in us. I wanna provoke your heart to invite the Holy Spirit that if there's anything inside of you that is not ready, and listen, I'm not talking fear rhetoric here. I'm not talking about turn and burn. I'm not talking about repent or you're gonna go to, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a revelation of the goodness of God, the beauty of Jesus and the restoration of the created order. I'm talking about an understanding of making every wrong thing right. I'm talking about the beauty of his kingdom fully come to the earth. I'm talking about a paradigm shift where we understand the second coming of Christ is a beautiful thing. 
It is a powerful thing. It is, it is a necessary part of our story. Otherwise, otherwise, we live this life in futility. Without the hope of Christ's second coming, without the promise of his kingdom fully come, everything we do is meaningless. It's worthless. It's meaningless. We might as well abandon all of this and just live for the moment. And the truth of the matter is, most people live that way. But we, the ecclesia, the separate called out people of God, live in light of an understanding. Christ is returning. Our King is coming. There will be a royal arrival and we will go those of us who are awake, those of us who are expecting, those of us who are longing for the return of our King, we will be ready for His coming. Number two, how we participate with this is that we continue to be at work. Multiple parables, particularly in the book of Matthew, where Jesus is speaking to His followers and telling them stories. Stories about being faithful in the assignment that's been given to you in the meantime. Friend, you have an assignment in God's kingdom. You have an assignment. You have a role, you have a function, you have a purpose. What you are doing matters. You are actually participating with the reality of furthering God's rule in the earth every day with what you are doing when you participate with it. When you bring peace to the brokenness of your colleagues, your coworkers, your classmates. When you invite that neighbor into your home, when you bring healing into the place of brokenness, those that are experiencing loss and pain and grief and despair, you are bringing God's kingdom to the earth. What you do matters. So how do we participate with Advent? God, prepare my heart for your arrival. Number two, show me my work and empower me by your grace and by your mercy to be faithful and diligent in my assignment. Number three, we'll probably get into this more next week. But we need to keep a clean account. A clean heart. Listen, in the journey of life, in the road of pilgrimage, cruelty, hurt, disappointment, betrayal, criticism, slander, disappointment happen on the road of our journey. The thing that keeps wind in our sails and buoyancy in our souls is making sure that our hearts are clean and clear and free from the offense that drags us back. Friends, I want to encourage you today. Those of you who are coming to serve the elements of the table, would you please come forward? I want to encourage you today, friends. Allow Jesus to put a hopeful expectation inside of you. Number two, invite Jesus to reveal the power and the significance of your work to you. And number three, allow Jesus to heal your heart where it has been 
full of offense. And in so doing, we'll prepare our eyes, we'll prepare our hearts, and we'll prepare our lives for Christ's second coming. There's a verse I read last week. Come on up here to the front, you guys. We read this as we close out our series in Revelation. It's found in the second to last verse of the entire scriptures. Revelation 22, verse 20. It says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And we say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So today we approach the table of the Lord in the spirit of Advent, in the spirit of expectation and longing for the arrival of our King, for the full manifestation of his kingdom, for his goodness and his peace to reign supreme, not only in our hearts, but in this world. So I want to invite you to come to the table of the Lord, a table where we believe we receive something that is very spiritual in nature. We call it a mystery. We call it a sacrament. Is at this table where Jesus spoke to his followers and he says, this is my body that is broken for you. And this cup of the covenant is my blood, which was shed for you. Do this and when you do it, do it in remembrance of me, proclaiming my death, my resurrection, and my coming. Every time you do this, I'm gonna dismiss you from...